We welcome to the studio Gary Nelson. Gary has a long history in Troy and elsewhere of advocacy in the areas of transportation and the environment. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. Glad to be here. Gary, you graduated from RPI. You've had employment in the private sector, in the public sector, municipalities, and federal government, and been active in a series of nonprofit organizations. It's quite an imp impressive history and passion. You're currently serving on the Troy Council's Sustainability Task Force. Will you tell us what that is and how your role in that is contributing to change in the environment? Well, I hope it's contributing to change. It is a uh, task force that was established by the city council, and I was one of the original appointees. This is, oh, 2019, I believe, when we started up. Uh, most of our activity right now is focused on engaging Troy in the state's uh, clean energy communities program, and that basically consists of a number of actions that a uh, city can take in order to gain points and uh, scores, which potentially have uh, grants attached to them back to Troy. Uh, but our main focus in terms of the community is a number of campaigns. And uh, we have a flyer out, and one should look at the Troy City website, by the way, to uh, find where that is somewhere on the, uh, the website. Um, but there are four basic campaigns we're trying to emphasize that can get people involved in contributing to the reduction of greenhouse gases. Uh, they are solar power with both a community and rooftop component, electric vehicles, uh, clean heating and cooling, and uh, demand response energy metering. Uh, of these, uh, I really think that the uh, rooftop solar is the most promising. As uh, many people know, Troy had uh, a very active program of Solarized Troy, and uh, I, in fact, participated in that at the time. Uh, and this is about 10 years ago now. Uh, but it succeeded in getting a lot of rooftop uh, solar capacity in Troy. Uh, I have to mention one of the barriers to that is the regulations uh, by National Grid that limit you to 110% supposedly of your power consumption in terms of solar installation. Uh, frankly, I don't think I got anywhere near that, uh, but I also think it's irrational to limit the rooftop installations. If you got the rooftop and you got the money, you should generate solar. And I think that's showing up as being important to uh, counteract the increased demands for air conditioning in the summer now. Uh, in the longer run, of course, we've got a problem of storage. And I think that can be solved, uh, again, by a program that uh, actively shows you how uh, and where to purchase a complete installation for both the solar generation and perhaps wind generation in addition to that and the storage. Uh, but that's where we certainly have to go in the future. Uh, electric vehicles, of course, are substituting a one kind of vehicle for another, and I think there's a more basic uh, problem of modal uh, service and choice in cities there, uh, which we can talk about. Uh, the clean heating and cooling, geothermal is coming. Uh, Troy is pursuing a demonstration project on that in the Monument Square area, uh, and hopefully that'll be expanded over time. Uh, the demand response is a program run by the utility National Grid and uh, uh, one can sign up for it. I think it benefits mainly large uh, utility users, uh, but it is to say that the, uh, you're, you're metering your consumption according to the time of day and therefore 
uh, potentially the reduction of greenhouse gases by the timing of your consumption. In 2018, the city council ad adopted a new comprehensive master plan, and the sustainability task force was part of that. It also addressed areas of concern that you've had for a long time in terms of transportation. What can you share with us about the situation now and what we inherited from past decisions, either positive or negative? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, a comprehensive plan is really a pro forma document. I mean, this originates in federal requirements under the housing program. Uh, if you want federal money, you shall have a comprehensive plan. How much of development that controls is another issue. Uh, and I like to cite a uh, statement uh, I heard a long time ago when uh, uh, I saw a presentation by Tony Nellison, who is a fairly famous urban planner and architect. Uh, and he's the initiator of what's called the uh, visual preference survey. And so you go into a community and ask, what would your community like to, or what kind of community would you like to have? And the answer he got in one case was, well, we'd like Paris. Okay, well, everybody likes Paris. You know, great architecture, uh, not high rises, uh, spread out on boulevards. Uh, you ignore the traffic on the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> um, but, you know, people would like a good urban environment that is really classical. And Troy had that. And unfortunately, Troy gave that away. And uh, you really have to go back into the reasons why that happened. Um, and we could discuss that further. But I think the comprehensive plan, and I participated in it uh, before I got on the uh, sustainability uh, task force, uh, the one thing I inserted in that was to restore rail passenger service to Troy. Uh, we have the right-of-way. It comes all the way uh, up to Adams Street uh, from South Troy there. It is the remnant of what was a direct service uh, all the way from New York City by the New York Central. And uh, rail access was central to the creation of urban downtowns. And when that went away, and in the case of passenger service for Troy, that was 1958, uh, the location itself lost its potential for development. And I think from that, you can trace uh, all the further problems that Troy went through. Uh, but to tear down the architecture is not a solution to the problem. And we have the example just recently of, okay, declaring unfit the uh, building that was next to the uh, police offices there. Uh, well, you're either interested in preservation and will invest in the buildings, or you will bring in an engineer who says, all right, it's got a little defect there, and we're going to tear it down. Uh, okay, that was the county's responsibility, but I think it's just one more continuation of uh, a bad policy of not having sufficient interest in the form of Troy and just using excuses to demolish things in the hopes that something will sprout up. And something that sprouts up is never as good as what was there, quite frankly. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, we look at uh, the Uncle Sam Mall, the atrium. And uh, I just recently processed a number of my old slides from the early 1970s showing when they demolished the area for that and they put up the parking garage. Uh, and now we come full circle uh, these many years later, uh, I count it uh, almost 50 years, and we're taking down the parking garage and trying to go back to a mixed-use development. Well, okay, that's progress. That is good. Uh, but I think it's indicative of the mistake that was made in the first place. And... Uh, to me, the, the major mistake of that project, which again was a big bunch of federal money coming down that the, the city really couldn't manage properly, uh, but the brilliance of Troy, just in terms of its layout, 
was the way the streets were platted. And what we had was a number of the streets that go strictly north-south, except for River Street. River Street happens to fall the bend of the Hudson. And what that did was create a very interesting set of squares. Monument Square survives. Uh, Franklin Square is gone. Uh, that's totally obscured. Uh, but the real center of the downtown, the 100% corner in real estate terms, the center of commerce, was really the square that was created where Fulton comes out onto River Street. Uh, and that is particularly what the parking garage and the plans for the atrium distorted. So basically, the Uncle Sam Mall put a big square overlaid on the street pattern, uh, eliminated the pattern that we had, and substituted a big blank block in the middle of it. Okay, I think that was an architectural mistake and a planning mistake. Um, but that gets into the other issues we were battling at the time. I mean, you've talked to Joe Fama in the past, and uh, you know he and I were colleagues back in the time, when, along with many others. Tom Blandy uh, was another activist at the time. And we were basically trying to fight the illogic of what Troy was doing to itself. Uh, so then you have to look at the mall combined with the Hoosier Street Bridge project, which was uh, the first highway project I really got active on. And if you look at those projects together, what was the scheme? And I can only characterize it as a scheme to tear down a city and concentrate more auto traffic in it. Well, okay, the Uncle Sam Mall was basically a poor imitation of what was happening out in the suburbs. Uh, by the time you had the Northway uh, coming across Route 5, you knew that the center of commerce would be headed out in that direction. Uh, so that was one nail in the coffin of Troy. Uh, but to try and correct that by just putting a highway in that ultimately would correct, uh, connect Brunswick directly with the commercial development uh, around the Northway uh, and uh, around uh, the Circle in Latham, uh, I mean, it was just totally um, inappropriate to do anything beneficial for Troy. So it was a basic mistake of logic, except it was sold as, okay, you need the Hoosier Bridge in order to serve the mall so that Troy can prosper. Well, Troy's not going to prosper, and the bridge just managed to eliminate a whole bunch of the market for the downtown and a, bunch, and a neighborhood that uh, did sit under the bridge at that time. And in fact, it was also the concentration of the black population in Troy. So if you want to talk about environmental equity, that was an excellent negative example of it at the time. And these were all points we argued in trying to litigate the environmental impact statement. Uh, we did not prevail, as is the case with most highway battles. So the, the, this originated then in part due to the, the Federal Highway Act and the, the housing plan and urban renewal designs. How would you say your vision is different from those visions, and, and what shaped your vision? Yeah, well, you have to go back quite a long way to understand the origins of both the highway program and the housing program. Um, they kind of reach a, a culmination during the New Deal. That's when the idea of the interstate highway system was articulated. And uh, when the program of uh, housing replacement in cities also uh, arose. And, and let me say, having lived in uh, the D.C. area, the initial examples of the housing program in terms of Garden City kind of concepts was really quite good. Uh, in fact, my daughter yet lives down there in Arlington in one of the examples, and they're really very nice townhouse neighborhoods. 
but when you got to uh, many cities after the 1949 Act, it was slum clearance. Well, what's a slum? Well, it's the center of town. Uh, it has a racist element to it, but anything that was old was fair game for being torn down. And with that was eliminated the social fabric and the commercial fabric of many cities. Uh, and that had been attacking Troy since the 1950s, basically, when the money started coming through from the uh, 49 Act. Uh, the highway program goes back much further. Uh, I mean, you have to go back to 1893 even, when the first federal uh, activity in highways uh, originated, and that was in the Department of Agriculture. And you have a program that morphed from being about rural good roads to ultimately, after 1939, uh, a program basically to pave over the cities in order to accommodate auto traffic in them. Uh, so once you accept that illogic, uh, the rest follows. You come to 1956, and from 1956 you come to the projects uh, that affected us here in this region. That's quite a, an ancient history, but how is it pertinent to us today, and how can members of this community radio station get involved in either your concern for the environment or transportation? Okay, well, I always go by the axiom that everybody does as well as they can, can under the circumstances. I mean, we all pursue our own interests uh, locally, and that's a good thing. But the circumstances are the kind of thing I'm concerned with. I mean, as you point out, I have a career that was down and around the uh, federal government there. Uh, I'm a system engineer, and I think more toward the circumstances that either force us to behave in certain ways or take away certain opportunities that we had. Uh, you know, you talk about electric transportation. We had it. We had the electric trolleys. Well, you look at what made them go away. Okay, and I think it was basically a failure in federal policy uh, on the one hand to promote the automotive and on the other hand to do nothing about what they knew in 1920 uh, was a mode in financial trouble. All right, the choice was there for the federal government. Uh, since the federal government did not act properly and states did not step in, we all suffer under the consequence. We lost the opportunity to have uh, what is still called transit-oriented development. It is what we had, it was efficient, it relates then to the greenhouse gas generation, uh, and that's what we need to bring back, but we can't do it individually. We need a change in formal policy. That's quite a, a, a challenge. Um, Gary, thank you for sharing your story and your, your vision for us. Um, is there any particular individual or writer or thinker that shaped your vision, and, and how might that inform us today? Okay. Yeah, well, I, uh, I blame a lot on my old colleague, Joel Woodhull, who had his own career as a transportation activist, uh, both here and when he moved back to his uh, home state in uh, California. Uh, so I owe a lot to him. He, in fact, is the one who threw the uh, impact statement for the Hoosier Street Bridge on my desk. <laughs> I remembered still in 1972, and that's pretty much what started it for me. Uh, in terms of an author, uh, I think a lot about Lewis Mumford. Mm -hmm. I think if you read his Technics and Civilization, uh, you understand a lot about what shapes our particular uh, ecology and our economy, and therefore what our relationship is to the ecology. We use technology. Uh, my career as a system engineer has been devoted to applying technology, and that's where the real trick is, to apply technology to actually improve things rather than using it to consume more things. 
Well, David, I think we're out of time for today, sadly. Um, thank you for joining us, Gary, and sharing your uh, expertise, experience, and current efforts. 